Imagine brain implants that could treat Alzheimer's, epilepsy, manage diabetes, moderate our appetite and even our mental health. Imagine brain-machine interfaces that could enable us to control machines through thought. This is not some far-off sci-fi future. This is today. This is the fascinating field of neurotech. So put down that Philip K. Dick novel and join me, Matt Millington, as we plug in to Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, what is the reality of neurotech, sci-fi dystopia, or a groundbreaking new frontier for health? Hello, and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. In today's episode, we're going into the brain into the fascinating field of neurotech. For those not familiar with the term, we're talking about technology usually implanted inside the body that interacts with our nervous system. Its use in areas such as pain management is well documented, but it has far broader applications. Although the field of neurotech is not new as a concept, its recent real-world applications are fueling predictions that this could change the very way we interact with technology. It could represent a fundamental shift in healthcare, moving away from drugs altogether. But how much of the hype around neurotech is hyperbole? Are we, as some would have us believe, looking at a future where our minds can be uploaded to the cloud, enabling us to decouple from our biological selves? What's the reality in the here and now, and how will it affect our health? This is what I wanted to find out, so I spoke to a few people who know a thing or two about it. First, I sat down with Ben Metcalf and Chris Dawson, two scientists who know the industry inside out. Ben is an assistant professor at the University of Bath and a co-founder of the Centre for Biosensors, Bioelectronics and Biodevices. And my colleague, Chris, is a mechanical engineer who, after working in F1 motorsport and aero engineering, now co-leads the neurotechnology here at TTP. So plug in and join us on this journey into our central nervous system. Ben, would you be able to give us a rundown of what neurotech actually is and covers and probably what it doesn't cover too? Well, I can try. How much time have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much everything we do or we think is the result of electrical impulses within our nervous system. Right. You know, the, the movements that we make, the, the things that we feel, the decisions we make, the dreams we have, these are electrical impulses. And so when you realize that you can modify those impulses, you can change everything about us. So when I hear neurotech, I immediately jump forward to my large sci-fi collection, which is slightly tragic. But I'm assuming that we're approaching a future where we are at one with our technology. Well, I, I think that... Um we all like to start with the sci-fi, and for for many of us that work in this field, the the sci-fi was often the inspiration for why we do what we do. We are, of course, absolutely grounded in the truth, and uh, I think that it's exciting to have this conversation today and, and find out how close the the truth of the here and now is. The name neurotech to me suggests that there is some kind of interface with our nervous system. What does that actually look like, 
at the moment? Well, I think I would probably start by answering um, that question by thinking about the existing technology in, in the market. So when I ask people to name some kind of neurotech device that, that's in clinical use, the, the device that people don't seem to leap to is the cardiac pacemaker. But of course, that is a neuromodulation device. And it's something that's been on the market for well over 50 years. It was first hypothesized in the late 1800s. Uh, this is a device that stimulates the nerves. It is a, a neurotech device. Chris, could you tell us why you're excited about this field of study and what kind of what got you into it? I think the the opportunity to interact with the human body in in its own language is kind of the way that I see neuromodulation. So we've had, you know, many hundreds of years, if not thousands actually, using pharmaceuticals to try in in a kind of trial and error way to address symptoms. You know, all of these things uh, are very ill targeted. And so the ability to kind of tap into the body's internal kind of telegraph system uh, and individually address things, I think is a really exciting frontier. There's all sorts of other things going on outside of health that that neurotech um, kind of seems to be touching into, particularly in popular culture. You know, you can't go anywhere or, or click anything without seeing Elon Musk come up. Could you explain... Ben, what Neuralink actually is? Sure. So Neuralink is, is a company and it's the, the brainchild, we should say, of Elon, who, who we all know very well um, and very famous for many of his other activities. And I think what Elon is is doing with, with Neuralink, like many of his other companies, is trying to really advance the state of the art by creating hype. And so we've seen some really interesting things in the news recently there was um, a pig-based brain interface and more recently a monkey playing pong i think it was on a computer using a brain interface that idea is 20 years old it's it's well understood we've been doing that for a long time but what they have done is is a really great job of the the sort of engineering the packaging the the concept of trying to translate these ideas from academic research labs into something that that could one day be a product in the marketplace i think with Neuralink. The, the kind of grand vision is actually probably the grandest of them all. It's, you know, can we effectively sublime into, into having perfect machine interface between us, the internet, and everybody else? Yeah. Um, and the short-term goal is, you know, is there enough there to create devices that help people out with motor problems? I think Neuralink are currently at a thousand or a couple of thousand neurons, what I had read was that the kind of goal is a million. To start doing useful things, you need about a million. So we're, we're a bit of a way off. Right. So all of the hype around Neuralink and kind of spelling out this sort of pseudo future, is that getting in the way of, of what we're really trying to do in, in neurotech and neurostimulation? I don't think so, no, uh, because I think what it does by creating hype is it brings resource into the field, and whether that's financial resource or whether it's actually getting uh, you know young people, young researchers excited in neuromodulation as a technology, if it brings attention and focus, I think that that fundamentally is a positive. I mean, e- even just targeting a particular part of the brain, um, from my lay perspective, doesn't seem to be that easy. I, I guess we don't have the same mental map we don't have we're not all working off the same blueprint so is each brain gonna be different yes Uh, gross anatomy is is pretty similar from one human to another but our individual pathways and connections are the very things that make us individual so yes there are yeah um there are differences between you and i and and that's that's actually one of the the challenges we we see a lot of research um 
for example, patients with spinal cord injury controlling artificial limbs. And it, it is absolutely groundbreaking, but you have to realize that often that is done with a, a neural interface or a brain interface that has been optimized and trained with that one individual over the course of many, many months. Um, and it's not a simple process to immediately then translate that or apply that to another individual because they've got different patterns and you would get different signals from their brain. So they're very individualized. Right. And even even within an individual, there's kind of brain plasticity, right? So things things move around temporally. The neurons that are in one place at one time kind of can, can shift around a bit. The more I spoke to Ben and Chris, the more I realised that even scientists and engineers like them, who are literally pioneering study into neurotech, still have so much to discover about how the brain works. It seems we're a long way off creating technology that can operate at the levels our bodies do, interacting with millions of neurons simultaneously. Given all the unknowns, I really wanted to know how scientists like Ben and Chris go about navigating our brain and our nervous system. Is there a common wiring map, for example? So to demystify some of the details, I chatted to another of our resident TTP experts, Dr. Hannah Claridge. After a master's degree in physics and a PhD in clinical neurosciences from the University of Oxford, she now specializes in neurotechnology and biosensing, developing clinical technologies for some of the world's largest medtech companies and ambitious startups. I asked Hannah to explain how we might go about mapping our wonderfully complex nervous system. So neurotech is anything that interfaces with any aspect of the nervous system. So the nervous system of the body is composed of different components. So you've got the brain, um, you've also got the spinal cord, you've got major nerves. So that's things like the vagus nerve bundle, which transmit data between the brain and the rest of the body. Um, and you've also got peripheral nerves. So things like um, all the way to your fingertips, they can be both sensory and they can be sending information about moving moving your muscles okay is one nerve connected to my toe and one nerve connected to the sensation of my earlobe is it is it that kind of binary so nerve cells are essentially connections so they can connect one part of the brain to another part of the brain but they can also connect from the brain to a different part of the body so um for example some of the longest nerve cells in the body might connect from the brain down to your legs or your feet um and the nerve signals, the electrical signals propagate down along those nerves, um, but they can also pass from nerve to nerve. Um, so the information can then be passed on to different parts of the body. Obviously, the, the central nervous system is, is incredibly complex. In your field of neurotech, have we, have we mapped that information superhighway of the, of the body or are we, still, you know, are we still in very much in the learning phase? That's a great question. We've learned so much over the last 50 years or so, um, but we're still nowhere near understanding everything. Um, so if I focus on the brain for a moment, um, there's, there's one view of looking at the brain, which is that different parts of the brain are responsible for controlling different parts of the body. So a different part of the brain is responsible for moving different parts of the body, for sensing from different parts of the body, um, for different types of actions, for different functions. So things like memory and decision making, um, and one way of looking at that is um, splitting up the brain into physical components that are in different regions. Um, and you can really dig down using MRI is often used these days to, to do that. 
But it's not just that simple. And there's increasing work done around um, the idea of the connectome, um, connectomics in the brain. So how do different parts of the brain connect to each other? And actually, Mm -hmm. a lot of the subtlety, a lot of um, memories or decision-making processes are about those connections. So it's not enough to know simply what one part of the brain does because the signals are constantly being shared between different parts of the brain um every time a signal happens you've got a kind of cascade and what you know what happens to the neurons that that is connected to that Mm -hmm. um so there's there's a lot more complexity around the the wiring pattern of the brain so does does this require an understanding of the individual to be able to do neurotech properly or or is it enough to be able to sort of have a loose understanding at this stage of what part of your of your brain covers what so I'm kind of amazed at how far we've managed to get with that loose understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get really, truly personalised treatments, I think you do want to be um, able to look at that kind of wiring mechanism for each individual. Um, yeah. But even without that, it's kind of amazing how much can be done with a fairly simple understanding. So even if we don't know how this treatment works, we kind of mm-hmm. know which part of the brain, which part of the spinal cord that we should be uh, stimulating. And that has been enough with some, you know, some careful clinical studies, some careful trial and error in order to get some really quite decent treatment options. As Hannah says, even though we're still yet to learn so much about the brain, we're already able to do a lot with the understanding we have now. We're able to create technology that can reliably interact and stimulate our nervous system to achieve incredible results. But what are those pieces of technology? What are the applications that scientists and engineers are really using neurotech for? I went back to Ben and Chris to find out. With our thousand bit or thousand neuron type technology, what kind of things can we do with it now? So what is what is the reality, the real application um, that, that you're tackling at the moment? Um, I guess that's a question for you, Chris. The real applications aren't even there. They're not even at the thousand electrode uh, mark. The real applications are down at the handful of electrodes. And so in DBS, it's things like Parkinson's mm-hmm. that we're trying to treat and, and, and refractory epilepsy. These are drug-resistant targets where there aren't any, there aren't any applicable drugs. Right. The application of stimulation is the only therapy that that has been proven to work repeatedly. Okay, so we're we're seeing applications that can do things like stopping tremors and things. Is that what you is that what you mean? Yeah, there's some fantastic videos on YouTube uh, where you see people with Parkinson's unable to lift uh, a cup of water to their mouth without spilling it everywhere. The kind of instantaneous effect of being uh, switching on the modulation and seeing them be able to pretty normally handle uh, a cup of water and take a drink is amazing to watch. So this is potentially absolutely life-changing. How close to a real-world application, are we? So that's out there. That's a, a device that, that's commercialised. So that's consists of an uh, IPG, an implantable program generator, mm-hmm. which is a, the pacemaker box uh, and a set of leads. And the pacemaker box either lives, in the, lives somewhere in your neck and the leads are wired into your brain, or some devices have the, the box actually in the brain cavity as well. Uh, so it's able to sense when you're when you're having tremors and intervene. Yeah. Uh, and the same with epilepsy. 
So that, you know, epilepsy is a, a kind of a cascade response of the brain that if you catch it early enough, you can disrupt it. Okay. And so, again, if you apply some sensing to those electrodes, you're able to catch that cascade before it gets out of control and takes over the whole brain. Wow. So, I mean, transformational. Um, and what about things like pain would be a fairly obvious application? What's, how are we using it to treat pain? What kind of pains can we treat? So the, the biggest uh, the biggest use of neuromodulation at the moment uh, is spinal cord stimulation, right? And so that's intervening somewhere in the spine uh, at a juncture that matches with the pain that you're you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so that's again mainly used for difficult to treat chronic back pain. Is the is the single biggest uh, single biggest target? And so is that where we, we start to get close to a sort of uh, an area where you would use pharmaceuticals normally? Could this be a replacement for something as controversial as, as opioids? So I think I remember reading that the US prescribes 98% of the world's legal opioids, which is a phenomenal amount. Uh, and so historically, this has been used to as a coverall to treat chronic pain. Yeah, for most people, works in that very limited use case, but obviously has pr- some pretty serious side effects. Spinal cord stimulation is a is a pretty good uh, replacement. I think as well, it's important to understand that pain is a complex phenomenon, and opioids are a blunt force tool that, as we've said, is heavily misused. I don't personally view you know, forms of electrical stimulation as, as a cure-all that will completely replace these pharmaceuticals, but I think they can supplement and augment. And I think we're learning a lot more about pain and we're understanding some of the, the processes that are involved. And I think actually there's opportunity here, not just for these devices to treat pain in the, the sort of short term. So if you're having a pain attack, you activate your stimulator and that might provide you with immediate relief. But there's also the potential if we can start modulating the nervous system that we can actually try and break some of the, the processes and cycles that lead to pain. What what happens when you get things like um, phantom pain from, from missing limbs, for example? What's going on there? Is that is that the brain expecting to receive pain from a limb is, that's no longer there? Yeah, I, I think it is essentially that, that process at work. The brain is expecting to receive sensory signals from a limb that is no longer present. And of course, the, there will be residual nerve fibers uh, in the residual limb after the amputation. They're likely to be sending some signals, but those signals will be disorganized. They won't be in the form that they, they should be, and that can confuse the brain and can result in, in symptoms like phantom limb pain. Um, not everyone who has an amputation will suffer from phantom limb pain, but a good majority do, and it can be really debilitating. And if you look at some of the treatments that are available, um, one of the things that we can do is we can stimulate those residual nerves to try and create the, f- the sort of natural sensation to recreate the natural signals. Wow, that is incredible. Um, I disappeared down a YouTube vortex, as I do quite regularly, and I'm sure lots of listeners do as well. Um, and I came across a very interesting conversation from a, an MIT professor about how we can hack the nervous system to believe that a limb that is no longer there is still there, which will make the way we integrate with prosthetics much more 
natural. Have you come across any of this? Uh, it's, it's completely plausible. So it actually links to some of my research. Uh, and in my group here, we've got a couple of people working on neural interfaces specifically for upper limb amputees. And we are focused on sensory restoration. So the, the concept here is that we want to increase the sense of embodiment. We want the artificial limb to feel like the original. And there are loads of benefits there. We talked about phantom limb pain, but also if you have this restoration of the sensory pathways, you can feel how hard your prosthetic hand might be grasping. You know, you can stroke your pets or cuddle your children and, and feel them and you can feel how hard you're, you're touching them. And that's, that's something that's actually really, really vital to human well-being. And, and when that's removed in amputation, it has a profound effect on quality of life. So, so that's work that we're doing. It, it's incredibly challenging. We can recreate simple sensations and we can provide electrical stimulation and we can create, you know, s- sensations of, of being um, touched in different areas and we can create um, sensations with different levels of force. But we're a long way from anything that, that feels natural and complete. We talked about applications in pain relief, which I can, you know, I, I understand. And then you've mentioned sort of off mic a few other slightly more unexpected areas that neurostimulation can actually treat. Hunger um, as a good example, but we can also treat things like depression as well as more traditional sort of physiological diseases like rheumatoid arthritis by stimulating nerves and by modulating the nervous system. And there's one nerve in particular, which is sort of seen as a, a cure rule at the moment, which is the vagus nerve. If you you know go onto um, go onto Google and just look for vagus nerve stimulation and look at the number of papers that are being published and the range of diseases and disorders that stimulating this nerve can treat or seems that it can treat is just just amazing. When Ben said this, I was straight onto Google, and you can immediately see why the vagus nerve represents such an interesting area of focus for neurotech. But rather than asking you to Google it, I went back to Hannah, our resident TTP expert, to outline its main functions for you. So the vagus nerve is a major nerve bundle which connects the brainstem, so the base of the brain, to some of the major organs in your body. So that includes the heart, the lungs, the stomach, the intestines. Um, And it's kind of like an information highway from the brain to those organs. And information travels in both directions up and down the vagus nerve. So by interacting with the vagus nerve, you're able to impact information that's going to the organs. So you can impact the function of the organs, but also you can impact the information going to the brain. Um, And that's a kind of a way into treating some uh, disorders of the brain as well. Um, One of the things that makes the vagus nerve quite appealing is that it's not protected by bone in the same way as the brain is protected by the skull and even the spinal cord is protected by the spine itself. So the vagus nerve travels down uh, down your neck, um, but it's something that you could interact with in a minimally invasive fashion, potentially even non-invasively. There are some treatments out there that are non-invasive um, and also quite non-specific. Oh, I, I could see it, but obviously listeners uh, can't see it. So you, when you were telling me where the vagus nerve is, you drew a line from both ears down your, down your neck. Are there two of them? There are two of them. Um, yes. So you typically refer to it as the vagus nerve, but there are definitely right. two. Um, and one of them goes to the heart 
Um, and generally speaking, you don't want to be messing with that. So you always use the vagus nerve on the other side of the body. Um, and that, that does connect down to um, the kind of gastrointestinal tract, for example. So um, you can use that to treat certain disorders of the stomach, um, perhaps of the lungs. Um, but you can also interact with it to, as I mentioned earlier, to um, send signals up to the brain. Okay, so uh, interacting with the vagus nerve is, is one way of treating these disorders, but are there any other ways of treating them? Maybe through a device which interacts with the brain itself? So um, to take the example of epilepsy treatment, um, there are devices out there now that are normally off, so they're only sensing, they're not stimulating in the brain. So what happens at the start of an epileptic seizure is you have all your neurons firing in sync with each other in a way that's quite abnormal. So you end up with massive spikes of electrical energy, which you wouldn't normally see. So as the device senses this abnormal activity, it then pulses some electricity into, into the part of the brain where that epileptic seizure is beginning and kind of jerks your brain out of that state and back into a normal state. So it's able to stop that seizure before it really starts and certainly before you have any physical symptoms. And do you, would you feel that as a patient, do you know? Can you feel that happening? No, because it catches it early enough. It catches the very beginnings of an epileptic seizure before you get the physical symptoms. So in most cases, it's able to jump the brain out of that state, out of that error state, if you like, um, back into its normal state without you even knowing. As distracting as it might be, I think we can forget about the Silicon Valley prophecies of human minds existing in the cloud, at least for now. The reality of neurotech in the here and now is just as exciting. Even at this early stage in its application, neurotech is generating some truly groundbreaking and life-changing treatments. It's less about mind reading and more about tapping into the body's communication channels to restore normal function. It's not really about adding superhuman powers, it's about making life more livable. But as you'd expect, with this level of opportunity, there are also certain risks involved, as Ben and Chris made clear to me. It sounds like, I mean, some of the applications obviously are academic at the moment. What what do you think are the risks of of um, some of these technologies when they get out into the open? I, I think, like like with pharmaceuticals, there are risks and dangers. Um, I think, strangely, I think that these are more thought about with in within neuromodulation because of the barrier to entry, if you'll pardon the pun. Having a device implanted and the leads installed is a, is a big deal. Let's not beat about the bush i think at the moment and ben it'd be great to get your view on this but at the moment it feels like you would only do that if the end result is going to be worth it yeah i I think from a clinical perspective you have to have a high level of confidence that an implant or or the surgery to place the implant is going to provide benefit to the patient and that's why we we normally see this happening in people that have completely drug resistant diseases so the Parkinson's, for example, or the severe epilepsy cases where really this is sort of the last thing to try. From what you've spelled out, the opportunity to transform people's lives are really, really widespread from pain management to positive behavioral change. Is there a future where we go beyond getting people back to operating in kind of homeostasis to actually improving the human experience? Um, we're getting close to the sci-fi bit again, but the superhuman application? I think we're there already. 
you have demonstrations of people using uh, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation and demonstrate improved cognitive performance in certain tasks by stimulating areas of the brain. As you develop the therapies, you're you're going to, in parallel, develop the chances for augmentation and improvement. I think I think it's a really interesting question. I think lots of the work up to now has gone into kind of restorative therapy. I think we're in we're on kind of safe ground there. I think there's a there's an understanding that that uh, that's for the greater good. I feel less comfortable talking about the kind of improvement because then you get into a a whole world of you know, is this a an extra advantage if you live in a wealthy society and are wealthy and you can apply these things to yourself and give yourself another advantage over everybody else? I think that starts to become tricky ethically. I think it's really hard to try and separate the two, though, because I think if you're developing the technology for a therapeutic um, benefit, you're kind of forcing yourself to also create technologies that could be used for augmentation. So I'm not sure how you do one whilst preventing the other. What do you both working on next or what do you hope to be working on next so i think the next really exciting area is uh, closed loop and this is something that ben's done a lot of work on so again we're kind of really at the start of the the neuromodulation journey i think being able to to continually tune and titrate therapy specific to an individual based on their response to it i think is a really exciting area that we've got the capability to do uh in the lab uh, and in some very limited ways in the field um but i think as that capability grows and the technology grows with it i think that's a super exciting area so i, I think for me the idea of closed loop neuromodulation addresses the challenge of chronic implantation because we develop a lot of these technologies in the lab in in short-term surgeries and over the course of four to six hours, everything is relatively stable, nothing really changes, and we can try out the different stimulation paradigms. But if we implant the stimulator, we know that six months later, there will have been growth of scar tissue or encapsulation tissue. We know that we're likely to see daily or weekly variation in how the nerves respond to stimulation. And at the moment, that's all done what we would call open loop. So we just apply a stimulation and we normally apply exactly the same stimulation every single day. So the idea with closed loop neuromodulation is that if you record the immediate effect of that stimulation, then you can adjust it on a daily basis. So you account for the fact that there's more or less scar tissue. You account for the fact that the nerve is more or less receptive from one day to another. So you create a simulation platform that's stable with time. And and that's that's probably one of the more exciting things that we're working on right now that is technologically achievable and will have significant impact. So I think I, I need to end on two very, very large and important questions. Um, the first one being, can you make it so that when I eat far too much ice cream, I don't get excruciating headaches? Oh, you can absolutely do that. Whether you'd want to, I don't know. I would. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to? What kind of side effects are you willing to tolerate? <laughs> I don't know. Mild tingling in my fingers might add to the experience of overeating ice cream. <laughs> I heard it was the the vagus nerve being close to your throat and it was the, the cold ice cream messing with that. I'm probably wrong. Yeah, I, I've, not, I've not heard that before, but it could be true. The vagus is certainly involved with the mammalian diving reflex. So that idea of splashing cold water on your on your face to kind of wake yourself up and, and to really focus, that's a, a vagus nerve response. Wow. So we're entering Aquaman territory here. So I know with a lot of training, human beings can actually improve their ability to 
stay underwater for much longer. Is that is that something you could effectively switch on? I don't know. I'm going to say potentially yes. Brilliant. That's all we got time for today. Thanks so much for listening and to our guests, Hannah, Ben and Chris, for taking us on this journey to our not-so-sci-fi future. We'll be back next week where we'll be exploring one of our most vital senses, our eyesight, to see how AI and proteins from algae could hold the answer to preventing blindness and even restoring lost sight. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It's hosted by me, Matt Millington, design and strategy consultant at TTP. It was written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.